What's up, everybody? This is Dr. Andy Wilzak, and this is another episode of Untenured Tracks. This week, we're talking to Kaylee Matheny from Stanford University. Kaylee is currently working on her PhD in the Sociology of Education. Now, I just want to say real quick a note about this episode. The audio quality is a little touch and go. We did our best with it. I had recording issues. There was audio problems on Kaylee's end, so there might be some places in this where it's a little rough, and I apologize for that. This is what happens when you're learning how to, how to do a podcast, right? So um, I encourage you to uh, listen to it anyway. I hope that you will. Kaylee and I have a really good conversation and touched on a lot of important points about her research. So thanks again for your patience, and I hope you enjoyed the show. So if you want to start just by um, either talking about like how you got interested in what you're doing, or I was looking at your biography a little bit this afternoon, and you've got a non-traditional background, I think, into to grad school um, a little bit. So if you wanted to talk about your background um, as first gen and, and being a public school teacher and, and whatever, however angle you want to take. Um, yes. So whenever you're ready. Great. Okay. I'll wait till the banging stops. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I started out, uh, well, I went to college initially, hoping mm-hmm. to be a writer. Um, I discovered fan fiction when I was in middle school, and I wrote throughout high school, and that was the thing that I wanted to do. And so I went to Emory University, which the USA Today had sort of uh, maybe arbitrarily dubbed the best school for budding writers. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, oh, I have to go there. It was a scholarship things sort of fell into place for that. Um, but then when I was there, I sat in on a sociology class. It was, it was uh, Sociology 101 taught, uh, taught by Tracy Scott. And it was amazing. Um, and I was like, wow, this is like really cool. And so slowly but surely, I ended up double majoring in creative writing and sociology. And um, by my senior year, I knew less what I wanted to do than when I arrived there, which I think <laughs> is some of the magic of college. Yes. Uh, <laughs> But, um, and so senior year of uh, college, I was like, you know, I, I'm starting to see these inequalities in a really stark way, especially through being a first-gen student. Um, my college roommate sort of, she was also from a small rural town, but um, she studied abroad and she got a scholarship, but she still had to pay for the plane ticket. Um, and she said that uh, the total cost of the flights both ways was $800. And that was the full amount that she paid to study abroad. Mm-hmm. And I said, that still sounds like a lot of money. And she said, well, it's not a lot of money to spend six weeks in Spain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was like, you know, you're probably right, but $800 is, you know, it is a ton of money yeah. <laughs> um, to, to somebody who, you know, I worked at Waffle House part-time and that was what I did every summer and just during school breaks. And I you know, tried to find campus jobs. Um, mm-hmm. i worked in the student call center for a month, which I would never do again. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it was, uh, it was really bad, but, um, and so, you know, 800, you know, something as small as $800, you know, to one person, it seems like a lot to another, it seems 
you know, uh, like a drop in the bucket and, and, mm-hmm. and part in way to a big opportunity. So um, things like that really started to come alive for me, as, as well as things like um, I'm from a community that's um, my high school is uh, majority black and, mm-hmm. and it's about 50 percent black and 40 percent white. And so I'd been sort of exposed to people who are non-white, but mm-hmm. uh, I had never really met um, very many Asian people or very many uh, Latinx people, and so um, college was also an opportunity to interface with um, folks from backgrounds that I just never had before. Yeah. Um, and I thought that you know all disadvantage was the same, and I think that that's probably this is maybe political, but I think that that's part of what contributes to some of the um, tense political climate now is is that a lot of low income white folks are. You know, saying like, you know, I had the same disadvantage as you, and when that's just really not true. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, no, I've I've encountered that a lot where I live. Um, the county that I live in. I think has a reputation nationally for two things. Um, we tend to be the county that CNN visits when they want to do a piece on the opioid crisis. And right after the election, they came here because we were the county that elected Trump. Um, and so a lot of that, um, like people calling it economic anxiety when in, in reality, it's a mixture of, um, actual economic anxiety coupled with like white supremacy and, and, and things like, and like old school, racism i think is unfortunately part of of living here and so i i've seen that firsthand (laughs) yeah um so i'm probably digressing but anyway so i go to college i like you know i meet tons of different people i realize that you know people who are different from me aren't as scary as my sort of thought based education has led me to believe and um and i said you know like i want to i want to be a writer but i also really want to go back to my community and, and give back and, you know, be the teacher that I had when I was growing up and, and you know, try to empower some of my students who mm-hmm. maybe wouldn't have been able to afford college or mm-hmm. maybe were thinking about it but weren't sure. Um, and so that's what I did. I went back and taught high school English for two years um, at the high school that I went to. It was a subject that I loved the most that I'd fallen in love with. And, yeah. um, and so, and I was able to be that person for, um, mm-hmm. you know, two, two whole years of students and it was uh, life-changing in a lot of really wonderful ways but yeah. it was also really hard because we test kids so much mm-hmm. um you know i was meeting i had lunch with a colleague today and you know there are maybe 10 teachers who were there from when i started teaching four years ago mm-hmm. um many of you know many folks have just left yeah. um, either the school or the professional together uh, because it's you know you're you're testing students and you're getting no support and you're getting no resources um, you know, it's just, it's, it's really hard. Um, and so, and I also just didn't think I was a very good teacher. I didn't care about testing students. I cared about students themselves. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> doesn't that mean that you're too I, good of a teacher though? <laughs> you know, people say that. <laughs> I'm that, but I was also 22. Yeah. Um, and, you know, 22 to 24 during the times I was teaching. And one of my students in that first year was 19. And so I'm like, I can't. How do I teach, you know, a student who is almost my age? How do yeah. I tell you what to do? Um, I think being a parent would have made me a better teacher because I would have been a little bit more of that authoritarian, disciplinarian type of yeah. Um But I wasn't that at all. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think, so I didn't think I was very good. Yeah. I think being a parent and a teacher helps you know how to pick your battles. Mm. Uh, and, you know, you just maybe get better intuition on, like, this is not this is not something worth fighting for. Like fighting, yeah. like, like dealing with their resistance versus like knowing when to stand up and like what type of behavior is really not pro-social, right? Yeah. 
so it was really, it, it was tough for all those things. And, you know, you come in and you have absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. There's, they give you a textbook and a class set of textbooks that, you know, may or may not be of high quality. And that's what you get. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was no, there were no resources. There was no curriculum. There were no tests. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there was, there was one unit test and it was absolutely terrible. I was like, I can't actually give this to kids with a straight face. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you're having to put all that, like some people do put in that extra work and that's what I tried to do. Uh, mm-hmm. But a lot of people don't have the bandwidth and, you know, and some, some days they didn't. So, mm-hmm. so anyway, being a teacher was very hard. It makes me, you know, a lot of people I think are sad about grad school, but mm-hmm. um, I think grad school is great. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's wonderful. Um, yeah. So you have I have more resources in grad school. I'm also in a you know in a very well resourced institution. So yeah. that's, that's a little bit biased, I think. But um, you know. <laughs> yeah, if you can go to grad school at Stanford and live in in that part of California, it must be so hard to get up every day. <laughs> you know, it just the, the the birds are singing, the sun is shining, uh, <laughs> and then you're trying to you know on the other hand you're dragging yourself into work as a teacher, and you're like you know no one supports no one supports me. This a toxic yeah. most of the time. So anyway, uh-huh. so I taught for two years. I didn't think I was good at it. I liked research from undergrad where mm-hmm. I worked with um, Dr. Scott, who I, whose class I sat in on, eventually became my advisor um, for my honors thesis. And, and um, I worked with a couple of other faculty there. And, um, and I just loved research. Mm-hmm. I loved the interview process and talking to people. And um, I, I always thought this was really cool about quality. And so I identified as a mixed methods researcher. Um, and the part about qualitative work that I just don't think I'll ever be able to get away from is the patterns that emerge that you're not even looking for. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's, it's always so fascinating, the things that, cause you know, you start out with a, a theory and you start out with an interview guide, you start out, you know, with a schema for what you expect to find. And some of that, of course, you're going to check some boxes, but other things are just going to, you know, emerge that are totally organic. Yeah. Uh, and it's just, I mean, that is some of the coolest, that, that's one of the coolest things I guess that there is that I've experienced anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that I loved that. I wanted to do mixed methods work um, because I also enjoy math and I love uh, data manipulation and I love thinking about the ways that we can, um, uh, you know, share data and present data and mm-hmm. the power that quantitative work has. And um, and so I I went to grad school. And here you are now. So what <laughs> what are you working on? Yeah, um, <laughs> what, what what am I not working on? <laughs> <laughs> There's a, a couple of projects that are really cool that I'm working on with some advisors. Um, so I'm working with uh, Sean Reardon and a couple of other grad students, Carrie Calvin Flores and Marissa Thompson, um, on achievement trends. Uh, I might wait till, okay. Um, on achievement trends, uh, which are we basically took the Stanford Education Data Archive. We looked at you know what is achievement doing over time from mm-hmm. 2009 to 2016, um, and we've done some really really cool stuff um, mm-hmm. and, and tried to look at the data in a variety of ways. And, I mean, the, the story is generally not great. Um, we see some things like you know the the white black gap um, or the white black disparity in it, uh, achievement is widening. The socioeconomic achievement disparity is widening. Mm-hmm. Um, so the white Hispanic achievement disparity seems to be closing in a lot of places, which is great. Um, but there also seems to be this convergence around mm-hmm. an average gap um, in the case of the white black gap and the socioeconomic gap, which seems like places that start out with lower gaps increase them, and places that start out with higher gaps lower them to sort of see this this convergence around an average. Mm-hmm. Um, 
which I think really troubling. And um, anyway, that's just one of the most recent things yeah. that we've done um, to, to work at the data. But we also looked, we've looked at the top 20 districts and have seen, you know, 11% of students are in those top 20 um, districts by enrollment. And, uh, and, you know, those trends are, are pretty representative of everyone else, which yeah. is that, uh, you know, which is that, for a lot of people, achievement is increasing, um, uh-huh. but a lot of you know gaps are widening as well. Um, so when achievement goes up, it's not always that we're privileging the experiences of all students. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, uh, oh. you know, that students with more advantage are better able to capitalize on some of the interventions that um, are in place to help students. So um, it's kind of a, a jury story, but I think it has a lot of implications for policy and the way that we think about how we want to um, how we want to pursue equity. So, um, so I'm working on that. Um, I'm working on uh, the American Voices Project with um, Danny Kresge and, and um, a whole team there, um, which is sort of it, it, I've heard it called a qualitative census. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to go around the U.S. interview 5,000 people. Um, follow up with them. Uh, I'm working on the text and convention part, which is really cool. Um, and I'm doing a couple of other things. I'm working on a project about um, a couple of higher education projects about, uh, you know, uh, the question, why do Jewish students, even after control of their socioeconomic status, have higher um, educational attainment in terms of just PA completion, but also um, graduate school completion and um, and also college matching and, and how do financial aid and other things sort of go into this um, matching question mm-hmm. and the, the college match process. So those are a lot of the things that I'm working on with other people. I'm also trying to think about um, an independent project, which is how do parents um, describe and conceptualize their post-secondary options for their kids. Um, and so that's what I'm working on. Okay. So when you, to try to like carry on that thought, Mm-hmm. When you're talking about parents, you mean like how how do parents pitch college to their kids or pitch like post high school to their kids? Yeah, just what do, what do, what do parents imagine as so? And this sort of came out. There's been a couple of studies recently about closing the aspiration gap between mm-hmm. low SES and high SES parents and um, socioeconomic disparities are, are the thing that um, I'm interested in unpacking and learning more about and probing and. Um, and so there's been some recent studies saying, like, well, what can we do to make, basically, to make low SES parents more likely to want their kids to go to college, uh-huh. um, which isn't an assumption that I inherently have. Um, you know, when I was teaching, I, I always think about these examples of kids that um, their dream wasn't to go to college. You know, yeah. there are kids, one of my kids, um, she was amazing. She made 100th on everything, finished everything early, perfect, perfect everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I asked her about college and she said she wanted to be an electrician and that that mm-hmm. wasn't really, that college wasn't on her radar or on yeah. her trajectory. Um, and I was disappointed and I just, I couldn't believe the audacity that I had to be disappointed. Yeah. Uh, because it wasn't my place, you know, that mm-hmm. she's going to be an amazing electrician and she got, I mean, she got job offers right out of high school and she was placing in state competitions and she mm-hmm. was doing just in the, as amazing at that as she was at everything, you know, uh, in my English class, and so, mm-hmm. uh, and so, I think that there's this college for all rhetoric, or even this like college opportunity for all rhetoric, yeah. that really places an emphasis away from other pathways that students actively want to take. And mm-hmm. you know, in some ways, I think that that sort of takes dignity away from the students that do choose to pursue those pathways. And so, um, and so, and even parents who may not want their kids to go to college, but 
I guess it's a bad thing in that if your kid wants to go and you're not providing them the resources or the support, yeah. maybe there, you know, is something that we should be able to do about that. But if you, you know, if you if you perceive a different set of risks mm-hmm. from other parents, you know, maybe that's something that we should understand better before trying to intervene. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Those are, those are some of the thoughts that yeah. I've had uh, in my head the last couple of weeks. Have you, have you thought about it in terms of, like, so say there's a student who is high achieving, um, who could potentially get into either, like, an Ivy League or, you know, that class of universities that is just below, right? Um, but for whatever reason, maybe their family, their family wants them to go to college, but going someplace that high isn't really something that the parents aspire to the same way that the kids do. You know what I'm trying to say? Um, mm-hmm. That yeah. the student, their, their kid is going to college, but their, their kid is going to end up someplace that um, maybe not be as prestigious. Um, not that I really think that it, I don't personally really think that it matters all that much in the end. Um, but there's still certainly like that value on the label, right? The name on your diploma matters a lot. Um, so yeah. if a kid wants to go to Stanford, um, but ends up somewhere else in say, I mean, I have no idea about the quality of, of anything in the university of California system, but I guess for lack of a better example, I'll end up at one of the UC schools. Um, have you thought about that? Like that limited opportunity that some students might experience? Uh, not a lot of the, like within four year college variation. Mm-hmm. No, I haven't, um, I haven't really thought about that. A lot of, uh, so the, parents that I'm talking to right now um, are parents of rising ninth graders, and mm-hmm. so a lot of them just haven't, they're like, I won't make it through a four-year school, but that's yeah. as much as they've thought about it, or they'll think about local schools, so mm-hmm. they'll think about um, San Jose State, or, uh, you know, some of them mentioned Stanford, and, and yeah. things like that, um, but... I think it's also hard because a lot of college going, particularly for public institutions, is so geographically bound mm-hmm. that if you, you know, if you live in a state um, uh, like, you know, I don't know, um, Kansas, where you don't have these like really, you know, high-ranking private institutions and mm-hmm. have these sort of limited um, college options, I think you get a different set of answers in those places. Yeah. Um, so I am trying to think about geographic. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think about geographic variation. I'm yeah. trying to take it outside of just the Bay Area. Yeah. Um, but I think we just have so much, you know, it, it, it's going to look different in any state you go to. It's going to look different yeah. in any region you go through. Um, so I thought a little bit about that type of variation, but not mm-hmm. um, necessarily the prestige hierarchy just yet. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I think just like the cheating scandal that's come out is going to give you like lots of stuff on the, like a, an interesting window into studying how upper class families function, you know, because sociologically that's been like a group, like a population that has been so closed off. You know, I worked at, I was a a professor at a school at a private school for a while in Florida. And when I went down there and like um, visited the campus and everything, when I was moving in, they were like, you know, probably one third to one half of our students come from wealthy families from new England who the families really wanted to send their kids to school in Florida um, as like a status symbol, but their kids didn't have the grades to get into like Florida state or university of Florida or wherever, like the schools that have name value down there. Um, So they ended up at the school I was at, um, which was an interesting kind of dynamic. (laughs) Like we want to be here, but we didn't end up, we, we came so close to hitting the bullseye, but we're in Florida, but here we are. 
that's really interesting. And, and I do think that that, um, you know, like parents in the Northeast and parents in the Bay Area, I mean, I think that there are some of these, like, like socioeconomic context mm-hmm. things that are, you know, where, where kids really feel this pressure to succeed and you're around all these other kids who are, you know, succeeding and going to, you know, high-ranking college. I, I put succeeding in air quotes for, um, <laughs> for you know. Um, and so I think, I think that context matters a lot. And so mm-hmm. I think that that's, you know, I think that's part of it too. Um, how does your work intersected with um, different marginalized groups? I know that you had talked about um, the experience of Jewish students who um, are doing better, even controlling for SES. And, and so why is that? Um, I'm kind of curious about the other end. Um, what type of stuff have you, have you encountered there? What type of stuff are you interested in at that end, if anything? Um, at that end. So, well, when we think about, uh, are we considering like the the you know folks in my Jewish paper a marginalized group or not? I think it's, I want to clarify that point first. Um, so I think yeah, I, I misspoke there. So thinking about um, racial and ethnic minorities who historically have been closed off from academia, um, okay. and, and what their college experiences look like. Um, yeah, and it's something that um, I think everybody is thinking about a lot. Um, yeah, and it's it's on my mind because I. Uh, in a, a previous interview I recorded today, that was part of the conversation was um, changing ways that classrooms function to better um, not accommodate, but to better like tap into talents of students who maybe not have been thinking about acad- academia in like the traditional way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I think most of what I'm interested in is mm-hmm. in, so, you know, I mentioned this, the, you know, socioeconomic disparities and mm-hmm. um, of course anytime you talk about socioeconomic disparities or think about that you, you have to think about race as well mm-hmm. um, unless all of your work is happening in you know small 99.9% you know white towns mm-hmm. um, the US is you know it, it is so socioeconomically diverse and, and racially diverse and a lot of times those things intersect and compound mm-hmm. um, and so I think it's something that came out in um, some of my uh, work thinking about how parents articulate college pathways, mm-hmm. uh, just thinking about also how parents of, of different racial groups and, and immigration status mm-hmm. uh, as well has been something that's, uh, that's come up. And, and obviously that's such a salient uh, piece of our, our political landscape right now, it's, you know, in a, um, you know, identity for families um, who either are immigrants themselves or who, who um, are related to immigrants. And so that's come up, uh, I think, in interviews in ways that I hadn't anticipated before. Um, or hadn't necessarily anticipated, um, but also just thinking about, um, you know, uh, I'm thinking about some of the work that I'm, I've been doing with um, our, our trends paper and thinking about uh, those achievement disparities and, and how we how little, I guess, we can explain of the socioeconomic achievement disparity and how little we can explain of the white-black disparity. And um, there, are, there are so many things, I think, that are happening at the school district level that we just, from a um, macro standpoint, have mm-hmm. very little way of getting leverage to. Um, and so I think this is sort of a very roundabout way to say it's, um, there's a lot of problems I think that I'm thinking about with the way that we ask research questions that in a way that you really can't get at those things or um, to the extent that they can, mm-hmm. you know, how, to the extent that they can, I think um, a lot of that's going to be qualitative inquiry, and I think a lot of that is um, centering uh, centering people in, mm-hmm. or, or 
I'm trying to think of how to articulate this. Um, cent- like centering identity, but not you know making people vulnerable um, in a way that could potentially be harmful. I think if you're if you're interviewing them or if you're talking with them, um, and also just like trying to avoid deficit-based framings. Um, mm-hmm. I think that has been kind of hard too because I, I think about this with our trends work is. Um, when you when you talk about the achievement gap, I think that there's mm-hmm. this sense of what can we do, you know, like, you know, black students need to do better or poor students need to do better. Um, and I think that that might be the wrong, the wrong way to frame it, um, because I think that there are these structural features of, you know, the way students capitalize on resources mm-hmm. that are different. Um, and the way that students come in, you know, with resources that are privileged by the systems that they're in, they're, you know, they come in with resources that are privileged by schools and that, um, that interventions may be better, you know, tailored to, to be served by. And so, um, I think it's a complicated question to think Mm -hmm. about what can we do to close the white black gap if it's, it, you know, it may not just be, it feels like the onus is on, um, marginalized students. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that that's the right interpretation, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes that makes perfect sense because you're you're asking to put the emphasis on them means that you're asking students to sort of bend to the will of a system that's not really designed to serve them as well yeah. as you would want as well as it should, right? Yeah. And and it kind of absolves anybody involved in the creation and application of that system from any responsibility. You know, it's not yeah. our fault that they are not doing better on SATs when we know the SAT is garbage, <laughs> right? <laughs> and that, yeah. <laughs> that we should, you know, we need to, the sooner we move away from standardized testing, the better. But it's interesting. It's like, it, it's almost like a riddle, right? Because the convergence of the of the achievement gaps, to me, suggests that there is, like, what was already a systemic problem is becoming like even more systemic if that makes sense like it's becoming really ingrained but yeah. then i think we also kind of realize or or are remembering <laughs> that the that schools should be community based and that the community like every community might have different needs and so what um i'll use schools local to to me what works for wilkesbury schools might not work for scranton schools um, even though geographically they're similar. Um, and so that's tricky. <laughs> like that's, okay. I guess that's where the riddle is, right? Like how do you craft policy that simultaneously addresses this, this national achievement gap while also giving like individual school districts or individual schools, even like the necessary wiggle room to adapt how they think they need to, and then adding in like the parents and the PTA as this whole third, <laughs> third thing, and sometimes they know best, <laughs> sometimes they don't. Um, right. You know, I don't know. That's that's really interesting. Like, yeah, and I I think we just don't know enough about how good policy gets implemented too, because yeah. you know we need we you know school districts need that wiggle room because they know their you know local populations the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, they know how to meet those students' needs yeah. the best, you know, and, and that that's the one thing. But then there's also um, you're going to get a lot of uh, variation in that, and you're going to get a lot of administrators and um, oh yeah, you know, 
teachers who are, you know, new to the profession and may not know best practices and, and things like that. And so you have to, I don't know, I, I think we struggle a little bit with figuring out the right balance. I think we struggle a little bit with, um, I think we still don't know how to effectively think about how to, I guess, how to bring the opting. I don't know if it's because of where you're at or because my kids have Netflix running upstairs or both. <laughs> um, but I will put in a note here. No, that's yeah, that's okay. I'm going to, when I record this, um, when I do the intro, I'm going to say, um, just an apology for the audio. If it's, if it's in and out, I mean, it's been recording the entire time. Um, and Mark will cut out this whole conversation. So, <laughs> Um, sure. yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so free to edit as needed. Yeah. Um, okay, so we were um, on the achievement gap stuff um, and the riddle about the policy and communities. And um, Okay, so I guess the last thing that I want to ask you about, um, since you do have this, and, and maybe I'm wrong in assuming that it's like a unique um, experience, so maybe I should ask that first. Are, are there a lot of people doing social ed work who have, um, like, a public school background or a teaching background like you? Or are you kind of an exception? It's a good question. I think a lot of the folks, in my, at least in my program, particularly mm-hmm. in my cohort, there seems to be a lot of social ed folks. Um, I, would say, I would say it's not a small proportion, but I think... Um, typically what I'd heard is that people, at least people in our PhD program who come in are about 50% teachers, 50% not. And, and Mm -hmm. policy tends to be more of the not. Um, and so, and, but I think we've had, um, our cohort had a particularly large, Mm -hmm. we were like 75% teachers or whatever. Um, yeah. So, so I, I'm not sure how unique it is, especially for the broader field, Mm -hmm. because people come to social vet from so many different, um, degree programs or different lenses or whatever. But, um, I think that there's definitely, there, there are other public school teachers Mm -hmm. uh, or former public school teachers who are, who are, who I work with. So, so I know that you said that, or you think that you maybe weren't the best public school teacher because you were so young when you were doing it, but nevertheless, you have that two years of experience. So I'm just kind of curious how, how much you think that's benefited you um, in grad school now. Like you have that two years of teaching experience to draw on, but also knowing like, you know, sociologically, you don't want to, like you understand that your experiences were your experiences and might not be representative of the larger system. So like, how much has that helped you, do you think? I think a ton. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it has been really valuable. I wouldn't be the researcher that I am. I wouldn't be the person that I am without that experience. And um, mm-hmm. I think even th- it was the first thing I did out of college. Mm-hmm. And even in just four years of college, you know, I, I mentioned I worked at Waffle House and from this very low income community. Um, it's, you know, if you look in Metro Atlanta, it's like, you know, there's like 35 school districts in Metro mm-hmm. Atlanta and we're like bottom five in mm-hmm. terms of, you know, SES. Um, and so, you know, I come from this community, but I went to this, I went to Emory and it's, it's a very, um, sort of gilded place. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I came back and I had sort of, even though I had had this very rich experience, I still had developed a lot of middle-class ideals that Mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, this, this sort of college going mentality and things like that. These were things that, um, I developed when I was in college and going 
back to, to my community and teaching and teaching high school, um, teaching students of all kinds, students who, um, you know, really wanted to go to college and would have thrived there, students who never saw that as part of their post-secondary pathways, but mm-hmm. um, still, you know, obviously hope to live full lives all the same, you know, mm-hmm. um, who, who hope to be mechanics and take over their parents, you know, their parents' auto shops and, mm-hmm. um, and, and things of that nature. Um, I think checking that it's 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 like checking my privilege but it's it's just checking those sort of ideals that i had developed in college and and Mm -hmm. realizing that there's a real context and and real implications um for the things that we're doing and it it, you know it makes me like laugh when i'm learning things um about test theory no offense to our um fantastic test theory instructor but i'm like (laughs) you know like i'm sitting there trying to like wake kids up to take (laughs) <laughs> to take their, you know, fourth test of the semester. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I'm like, I don't trust this data. <laughs> uh, you know, we use, CETA uses the math test to um, do, like, some secondary linkage after, after NAEP. And I'm like, I wouldn't use math data, like, if it was handed to me. <laughs> uh, just because the kids were, you know, they're in my classroom saying, does this count? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> like, sure. Yeah. Believe it counts, even though the answer is a resounding no. Yeah. Um, any great book, you know. So anyway, so it makes me it makes me skeptical of things. It makes me know. Um, you know, I, I feel bad saying that because it's like, oh, I don't have faith in like these big data things. But like, you know, I, I've been in the classroom, and, mm-hmm. um, and it makes me skeptical. And, and I've been in a place where it's not it's not a college going. You know, that's not a norm. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a thing a lot of kids do, and a lot of kids don't. And Mm-hmm. And the big milestone for a lot of families is, is crossing the graduation stage, and a lot of kids don't make it there. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's so my experience is obviously like very it, it's a niche experience. I didn't do TFA. A lot of people you know what did TFA. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people you know taught in private school or they taught in charter schools, and these are all just going to look um, very different, and they're going to you know bring people in with different sets of experiences. But um, mm-hmm. my experience was uh, I think extraordinarily helpful for helping me become the person um, and, and hopefully the researcher that, that I am. That's awesome. That's great for you, Kaylee. Um, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Um, I really appreciate it.